You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together this afternoon. We turn to the letter of Paul to the church at Rome, chapter 7. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. So, my brothers, you also die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say, then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. And indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. And through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good. So that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual soul as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do, nor the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this lot work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, 
our Lord. So then I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. I preach to you this afternoon from the word of our God as the church confesses and summarizes this in Lord's Day 2 of the Heidelberg Catechism. From where do you know your sins and misery? From the law of God. What does God's law require of us? Christ teaches us this in a summary of Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment. A second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Can you keep all this perfectly? No. I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. The love of congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, it's something that we all do at one time or another. We go to the doctor when something is wrong with us. We go to him or to her to find out exactly what it is that's ailing us. But sometimes he or she can't tell right away. Sometimes they tell us to get an x-ray or a scan or even an MRI. And so we do that and we wait. We wait for the results to come in. And once they're in, we have a better idea as to what we are really facing. Is this something minor or is it major? Will medication get rid of it or is an operation necessary? Well, beloved, in some ways, Lord's Day 2 is like a visit to the doctor. It's like a visit to Dr. Heidelberger. Only this particular doctor doesn't deal with physical ailments. He specializes in spiritual ailments. We go to him and he takes us on as patients, but then the first thing that he does is run us through a whole battery of tests. He wants to make the right diagnosis. He wants to know precisely what ails us, what's bugging us. And so what does all of this entail? Well, beloved, I'd like to preach to you this afternoon on the following theme, getting to the bottom of our problems. First of all, we're going to look at a revealing instrument, secondly, a radical requirement, and finally, a revolting predicament. So getting to the bottom of our problems, a revealing instrument, a radical requirement, and a revolting predicament. Well, I mentioned a moment ago something about x-rays, scans, and MRIs, and as such, we all, I think, would admit that these are rather useful devices. They look into our bodies, they reveal things that the naked eye cannot see, they pinpoint problems that otherwise might very well go undiagnosed. But you know, these things are all in the realm of the physical. What about the spiritual? Is there something that can tell us whether or not we have spiritual issues, spiritual problems? 
Of course, some people might want to say right away, why bother? Why bother to look for some sort of instrument that examines our spirits or our souls? All we need to do is read our newspapers or listen to our evening news broadcasts or read some books, and they tell us that something is wrong with us. We wouldn't have all of this murder, mayhem, bombing, rape, and mayhem if it were not so. We don't need some sort of fancy instrument to tell us that something is wrong with the human race. And as well, there are also people who say we don't need to read or watch anything to know this. All we have to do is look into our own lives and the lives of the people around us. And what do we see? We see that we have this great talent for making a royal mess of things. And, of course, all of that's true, sadly true. But at the same time, we also need to go deeper. True enough, human experience teaches us that we have problems and that we attract problems. But yet, at the same time, human experience doesn't get to the bottom of our problems. No, if we want to get to the bottom of our problems, we have to go elsewhere. And if you ask, where do we need to go? Well, we need to go to God. Psalm 139 reveals God to us as the only searcher of hearts, as the only true doctor of souls. As the psalmist begins, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit, when I rise. You know my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. You created my inmost being. You knit me together. All the days ordained for me were written in your book. Before one of them came to be. Search me, O God, and know my heart. You see, the psalmist is saying that God knows me. And so if we want to know what really ails us spiritually or morally, we need to go to God. We need to go to him in prayer. And we also need to do something else. We need to consult his holy book. You know, over the centuries and still today, people turn to all kinds of Gods for solace and and solutions. But there is a problem with all of these gods. And if you ask what it is, they they don't speak. They, They don't tell you anything. They leave you guessing, wondering, even worrying. But beloved, not our God. Not the God of the covenant. Not the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He not only hears you perfectly well, but he speaks to you too. He speaks to you in his word. He lets you know what he thinks. He doesn't leave you guessing. And that also applies to our spiritual ills. Do you want to know what they are? Then turn to his word. More specifically, turn to his law. 
If you ask why should we turn to his law, because more than anything else, his law reveals concretely what his will is for our life. It tells you what he deems to be right. And it also tells you what he deems to be wrong with you. It tells you what you need to know for a total evaluation of all of your life. Of every part of your existence. Go to the law. Now, beloved, that is something that most people, and I would also say a lot of Christians, do not want to do. You know, there is a lot of resistance whenever people hear the word law. It's considered almost universally to be a negative term, a distasteful expression, an abhorrent word. It's also very controversial. But do you realize that in some ways law is like love? Of course, there is one big difference, and that is that everyone loves the word love. But even though we may all love it, that yet doesn't stop us from arguing about it. Does God love everybody? Does God love the world? Does God love unconditionally? And if so, if God loves in this way, why is there hell? And why are there occupants in it? You've all heard those kind of questions. And they underline the fact that while love may be lovely, it's also often controversial. And why is it controversial? Why do we often argue about it? Because we often forget that the word love is used in different ways in the Bible. You see, when the Bible speaks about love, it may mean the love of the Father for the Son. It may refer to God's providential love for all of creation. It may be a reference to God's seeking, saving love. It may have to do with God's choosing, electing love. Or even with God's conditional love. You see, you need to read that particular word love in context. And you need to identify exactly the kind of love that is being referred to. Well, now, in the same way, the word law functions like this as well. The word law is used in different ways, in different contexts. Sometimes it's used in relation to the Holy Spirit and the work of the Spirit in us. Sometimes it's referred or used in reference to the curse-removing work of Jesus Christ or the believer's religious status or righteous status. Or to the Old Testament and how it tutored the people of God at that time. Or to our sin and how the law exposes it. You can say, beloved, the law functions as a teacher, as a guide, as a judge, as a counselor, as a curse. But also as a scalpel. 
And that also explains why the Bible often speaks both negatively and positively about the law. In one setting, and we've read that here in Romans 7, Paul insists the law is good and the law is even a delight. In another setting, in Galatians 3, verse 10, he refers to the law as a curse and connects it to death. You see, you need to read carefully. And you know, the same goes for here in the Heidelberg Catechism. For how does it answer the question, from where do you know your sins and misery? It says, from the law of God. But we ask, which law? Is the catechism referring to the law that teaches, that guides, that assures the believer? No, it's referring here to the law that diagnoses and exposes. It's referring to the negative side of the law of God. Here the law is like a scalpel, like an x-ray machine, like a scanning device. And you can see the footnotes verify this, for they point to Romans 7, and there the law very much unearths and describes and reveals our fallen condition. Paul says there, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. I would not have known what coveting really was all about if the law had not said you shall not covet. In other words, just like I would not have known that I had cancer if the MRI machine had not spotted and identified it, so I wouldn't have known that I had sin. If the law had not spotted it and identified it. So you see here we have the law functioning negatively. We have the law telling us what's wrong with us, what ails us. And that is usually painful and distasteful. Then we often get to hear things that we really don't want to hear. But notice, the end result can be good. If that MRI hadn't spotted that tumor, you might be a dead woman today. And if by the same token the law had not spotted that sin, you might be a dead man today eternally. So, beloved, don't dish the law. Don't take over this silly notion which is all around us that the law is gone or finished or over or is no longer good for anything. Just as you're thankful for all the medical means at your disposal, so be thankful for the law. That it gives you a true spiritual diagnosis of yourself. 
But then, of course, the question also may arise, if the law functions negatively in the catechism, just how does it do that? How does it find and expose sin? How does it work precisely? For example, does it give us a list of do's and don'ts? Does it give us perhaps a list of demands? Does it threaten us? Does it hold the specter of hell above our heads? Just how does the law expose our sin and our misery? I would say to you that more than anything else, the law does that unexpectedly. For next, notice how the catechism connects here to Matthew 22. And to the summary of the law as given by the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, too, that the Lord Jesus doesn't invent this summary. He takes it from the Old Testament. He takes it from the books of Deuteronomy and Leviticus. In other words, he takes it from the law books of the Old Testament. So what does that tell us? It tells us, again, there's this very close relationship between law and love. And indeed, it tells us and reminds us that love captures the heart, the essence, and the center of the law. Believe it or not, it tells us that law fundamentally is all about love. And that's another reason why you and I shouldn't dish the law. You can dismiss the law without doing damage to love. After all, why did God give his Old Testament people Israel his law? Why did he give them ceremonial laws? Why did he give them a civil code? Why did he give them moral commandments and precepts? Was it to make their life miserable? Was it to rub their noses in their sins? Was it divine payback time? No, beloved, the law may often come to us in negative terms with its do-nots, but its intent is always positive. By it, God wants to teach you, enlighten you, mold you, bless you, preserve you, save you. The law of God is rooted in the love and concern of God for you and I. You know, that's why Psalm 19 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commandments of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. You see, the law reveals God's love and compassion and concern for us. And it also demands an appropriate response from us, I might add. The law calls upon us to love back 
It calls on us to love God back in the very same total way that He loves us. It calls us to, to love our neighbor to the same degree and with the same passion that we love ourselves. Our love for God must be exclusive. And our love for our neighbor should be comparable to that. And you know, that's quite the calling, quite the challenge. And indeed, I would say to you, it's a challenge that forces each and every one of us to take a good, hard look at our lives and to ask ourselves some rather blunt, uncomfortable questions. Just how is the state of my love life? Just how much do I love my God? How total and radical is my commitment to Him? Is He my first love or my last love? Is He my big love or little love? Is He my all-consuming passion? Or simply my part-time convenient fix. And what about my neighbor? How deep is my care and my concern for him, for her, for them? Do I even know them? Do I want to know them? Do I pray for them, serve them, look out for them, help them? How's my love affair going, not with my girlfriend or boyfriend or with my husband or wife, but how's my love affair going with my God and with my neighbor? In that regard, it's also interesting to note that the catechism doesn't ask us casually about this or flippantly about this. Now, it challenges us by using the verb keeping. Can you keep this? Can, can you do this, Matthew 22, business? Can you live up to this? And as well, it speaks about all this. So can you do this? Can you, can you love your God with heart, soul, mind, strength, and everything else that comes with it? Can you love your neighbor as much as you're in love with yourself? And finally, it speaks about keeping all this perfectly. Can you do it 100% all the time, every day, everywhere, with everyone? Can you do it without compromise, without exception, without fail? Notice the catechism summarizing and mirroring the scriptures is not just asking for a little bit of part-time love. What it wants is something complete and absolute and perfect. And it challenges every one of us and asks, are you into it? Are you living like this? Is God the focal point of your life? And is your neighbor getting as much attention as you give to yourself? And the answer, it's sad, shocking, and blunt. No. 
No. It shouts and confesses. And it's also self-condemning when it states, I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Notice the language again. It's precise. It's penetrating. It doesn't say, I'm inclined to forget or to fail or, or to fall short or, or, or to stumble once in a while when it comes to this kind of love for God and neighbor. No, it says, I'm inclined to hate. It's saying hate lies closer than love. Hate is more a part of my nature than love. Hate comes more easily than love. What a devastating indictment. What a stunning confession. And what an embarrassing admission. And indeed, I'm not sure when or whether you can remember the first time that you read the catechism and you heard these words. But I'm sure you're taken aback, if not shocked. Is this really what the law exposes in me? Is this really what lives in my heart? Is this what I am by by nature? I don't think any of us want to hear this. And by the way, neither does anybody in the world. Try this next time you go to college or university. And when your teacher goes on and speaks about the goodness of man and waxes eloquent about the nobility of the human spirit, pipe up and say, but I believe that I am inclined, and you too are, by the way, by nature, to hate God and your neighbor. I guarantee you the silence will be stunning, and thereafter the sky will fall in with anger and accusation. That's not me. That's not us. That's nothing more than religious nonsense. But is it? Just how do your unbelieving classmates speak about God? Do they even know him? Do they acknowledge him? Do they heed him? Do they honor him? In any way, they don't, do they? So is this love or is that hate? And closer to home, what about us? What's the state of our love affair with God? Is it so that Sunday or better yet on the Lord's Day, as soon as it rolls around, you just can't wait. You jump out of bed at 6.30 in the morning with a song on your lips. And your children don't even have to be called once because they're all up already getting ready. And everybody's joyful and upbeat and full of anticipation because we just can't wait to worship the Lord. Is that a true picture of you and of your family? Or is it a case of, oh, it's Sunday again. Time to go to church. 
We have this way of being able to say, church. It already sounds negative. But my bed is so warm and so comfortable. And, and who wants to get up early anyway? And, and by the way, who's preaching? And do we really want to listen to him? And, and do we really want to sing those songs? And do we really want to be in the same building with those people? Which picture is closer to the truth? Which one best fits? I dare say the last one better describes us than the first one. And then we're even talking about believers, about the redeemed, about the covenant children of God. Yes, even we, of all people, have a hard time loving God totally, radically, and completely. And then we haven't even talked about our neighbor yet. You get the picture, beloved? It's not pretty. The law is not so far out with its assessment or its diagnosis, is it? As a matter of fact, it's dead on. And that can be depressing, discouraging. It can also make you wonder. But you know, it can also make you thankful. I remind you, we've entered into the month of December. And that means it's Advent time again. It's that time of year when we start to zero in on the coming and the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And you know, that's good. Because at least that tells us that there is one person who loves God and his neighbor all the time and never hates. There's at least one person who's fulfilled all the demands of God's righteous law. Yes, and that person doesn't keep his perfect love and his perfect obedience to himself either. No, he shares it. He dispenses it freely and graciously. He gives it to you and I. He gives it to all those who believe in him. And thankfully he, and he alone, has the power to redeem us from the curse of the law. You see, in the midst of sin and misery, all is not doom and gloom. For to us who believe, as Isaiah said long ago, to us a child is born. To us a son is given and the government will be upon his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of peace. You and I, we have the perfect medicine in the perfect person for all our sins and misery. 
And that's what we need to embrace. And that's what we need to spread around. To tell others. To tell our children. To tell everyone. Let the world hear about him. Who alone is able to turn our hatred into love. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.